Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey folks, just a quick warning that today's episode is a discussion of a novel that many of you are going to want to read, Orville Shell's My Old Home, a novel of exile. So, spoiler alert, I will be discussing certain plot points of the novel with the author, and if you plan to read the book and you don't want to be spoiled, please wait until you've read it or have gotten pretty far into it before you listen to this program. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's free email newsletter, SupChina Access, and check out our relatively new SupChina AM for a business-focused briefing that arrives in your inbox in the morning U.S. time. Visit our website at SupChina.com for a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm delighted to welcome today an old friend whose towering accomplishments across an incredible career have secured for him an enduring place among scholars and commentators on contemporary China. Orville Schell is Arthur Ross Director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. He is a former professor and dean at the University of California, Berkeley, Graduate School of Journalism, and has published at least a dozen books by my count, most of which uh, focus, yeah, on China, although there's some books on farming and books on meats and all sorts of other stuff. But today I am thrilled to be discussing his latest book and first major novel, my Old Home, a novel of exile. And while it's a doorstop, it's a very, very engaging read that I had trouble putting down. It covers a broad and truly dramatic swath of China's history from really 1949 all the way through the early morning hours of June 4th, 1989. Uh, my Old Home succeeds, in my estimation at least, both as a compelling work of fiction and as a very useful historical window into this tumultuous period uh, and how it was experienced by many Chinese elites. The novel centers on the life of Li Wende, the only son of an American-educated Chinese classical musician and his half-Chinese wife, herself the daughter of American missionaries. It's a good old bildungsroman. It's uh, 
uh, one that really follows the life of Little Lee, as he's often called through the book, uh, from his earliest memories, uh, his father's persecution during the anti-Ritus campaign of 1958, his separation from his mother, the even more cruel and brutal fate uh, his father endures during the Cultural Revolution, uh, his own decade-long exile uh, to hard labor, breaking gravel on a rock face in an ethnic Golok region of, North, of remote Qinghai, out on the Tibetan Plateau, uh, his first loves, his bewildering experience of Deng's reforms, uh, his sojourn in San Francisco, where Li Wendo's parents met and married. It's just great. He gets involved with not just one, but two American paramours. Uh, and at last, he returns to China in 88, where his participation in the student movement of the following year uh, brings the story to a conclusion. Threading through the whole thing are music, especially the sublime music of Johann Sebastian Bach, and literature, especially the works of the man widely regarded as 20th century China's greatest writer, Lu Xun. Orville Shell, congratulations on the book, which has been very warmly received. I've heard many of your peers and colleagues in the field gushing about it. And welcome back to Seneca. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Kaiser. So, so Orville, how long have you been cooking this thing? I mean, seriously, even thinking about writing a novel now, I mean, I've, I've seen in other interviews for 40 years. Uh, but what stopped you from publishing before? And what finally lit the fire? to get you to finally finish the thing at, at, at this point in your career. You're 80 years old now. Well, I think, you know, what stopped me from publishing was it, that it wasn't written. <laughs> and, no, no, uh, I mean, what stopped you from writing the thing? I mean, Well, I was writing it uh, on and off for many decades. And I, I, I think, I mean, often uh, uh, the, the process of going from being a nonfiction writer to a fiction writer is a bit like, you know, gender reassignment. It's not easy. And you really do have to enter another universe. So it took some time to sort of re-educate myself to be able to actually do this. But I guess I felt that, uh, you know, from my first trip to China uh, in 1975, you know, when the Cultural Revolution was still going and Mao was still alive, I just felt there were so many mysterious things that I had a very difficult time coming to terms with that were not easy to uh, uh, get a grasp on uh, in nonfiction. So that sort of set me off. And I thought maybe through literature, music, psychology, art, uh, interpersonal relations, maybe one could understand something about China that was pretty elusive otherwise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, literature is the only real way into the inner lives of, of, of people, right? And, you know, your use of, of the humanities, especially music, which we'll talk about in a moment. But, yeah, as you say, friendships, familiar bonds. Uh, but in your case, also romance, love, and lots of sex. <laughs> There's uh, really a surprising amount of that in, in these 700 pages. It's going to catch some of these readers familiar with the rest of your oeuvre a little bit off guard. <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering, when I read this thing, uh, I was reminded of a few writers. Uh, and I, I'm just I'm guessing here, but are you familiar with Richard Powers? Yes. Okay, okay. Because I, I felt some Richard Powers going on here. You probably read the Goldbug Variations. Yes, yes. Well, okay, so, oh, great, great, great. Sort of relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very relevant. I mean, you know, with the, the use of, of, of Bach. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he, he sort of blends it with with uh, genetics, right, uh, with, with, you know, the science of DNA, uh, and also with sort of code breaking. Uh, but uh, there's another uh, more recent Richard Powers novel called Orfeo. Have you read that as well? No, I haven't. Okay, that that's one that, that also blends in a ton of classical music. Uh, but I, I think both of you, and, and yours as well, assume a certain familiarity 
with that, with the canonical works by Bach anyway, uh, on the part of the reader. I mean, it's weird. Orville, I mean, we've had, I don't know how many conversations, some very long ones, and for some reason we've never really talked a lot about music. I didn't know how anchored you were in music. I, I don't know whether you play an instrument, shamefully, I, I, I'm, but for me it's quite clear. I mean, I assume that you love Bach as much as your, your character Li, Li Shutong, uh, Little Li's father, does, yeah? I do. Uh, I mean, I've had it my whole life an abiding uh, love of Bach and, and uh, spent many years playing the oboe, of course, which is oh. Bach's sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> and Bach is always just sort of using the oboe to entreat people to follow him into his, uh, into his music. Um, and I think I felt, you know, from early on, uh, w whenever I was in China, um, it seemed to me that, that the world of Chairman Mao was as far away as you could get from the world of Johann Sebastian Bach than you could get and still be on planet Earth. Uh, I mean, when you, when you kind of think about what the Chinese revolution was about and Mao was about, I mean, Mao was about immortality and really changing things in China in a profound and fundamental way. I mean, the outside world. But Bach was about the inside world. You know, he's deeply religious, and most of his cantatas were about coming to terms with your mortality, that you're going to die. And he had a lot, a lot of death in his life. And he wasn't trying to rearrange the world outside. He was trying to rearrange people to be in his view, good people, human people, and mortal people. Yeah, yeah. You bring up Bach quite a bit, uh, but I think it, it feels like you made an effort to keep your references in the realm of the more familiar, uh, the cello suites, the Brandenburgs, the French suites, the uh, the Goldberg variations, and the cantatas that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, I mean, it was it was kind of fun. Just this anticipation, like as soon as Little Lee receives a gift from one of his father's friends, a cassette tape for him. Before I got to those words on the page, I was sure that it was the Glenn Gould recording of. of, of you know, I mean, and and I knew that you would then have to make mention of the fact. And it, it took you a, another page or two. You, you didn't rush it to talk about how Gould you know, vocalizes and mumbles and hums and all that, which is, you know, sort of one of the things, one of the little bits of trivia that people even unfamiliar with classical music probably know about about that. That mm. it was great. I mean so the, I think that the the your your deep steeping in Bach it really comes through and it's 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 lovely. And yeah, the interiority of that music compared to uh, yeah, as you say, Mao's kind of um single-mindedly exterior product of transformation of, of the nation. Yeah, that's an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, Orville, another thing I loved about this book uh, was the fidelity to the Chinese language in it. I mean, there's the, the dialogue between the novel's characters. I felt like every time I would say, I, I could, I'd say there's something, that is something that is sayable colloquially in Chinese, which is often, I think, a failing in, in, in historical books on China where there's just too much idiomatic modern English uh, and and things sound anachronistic or or not really possible in the Chinese language or not 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 easy. So, I mean, throughout the book though, you make this choice, which I thought was interesting, of actually including the the original Chinese, as it were, for Chinese characters for some idioms and even for ordinary words like you know niu peng, cow shed. You know, you decide to, to parenthetically insert the Chinese characters. Um, that maybe 
didn't go over well with your editors? I'm not sure what they would have thought of that. What, what was? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. They 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 were a little incredulous, I have to say, uh, uh, and I think some people feel it's sticking the Chinese in the middle there. Uh, if, if they don't speak Chinese, is sort of interrupting. But hmm. I think if you do speak Chinese, and I, I profoundly hope that you know people who are Chinese would end up reading this book too. I think it may help, kind of, um, you know, put it in two dimensions at once. So I, I really wanted to do it, and and as you know, uh, some of these expressions in Chinese are so wonderful. Uh, they're so so perfectly balanced in their uh, contrariness sometimes that mm. just, and you can't translate them very easily. So I thought, well, let's just try this. I think it worked. I mean, I think that yeah. was one of the things that, that just really uh, made the uh, the made the dialogue feel very real. In fact, sometimes I felt like the dialogue that was supposed to be in Chinese rang more true than dialogue that was supposed to be in, you know, the English of the 1980s, say. Um, I mean, you know, or, or, or some of the stuff that, you know, when you, you, you have this uh, group of hikers who comes through, they they sound a little more anachronistic to me than the Chinese. <laughs> well, they, they, hearing them now, they, they are a bit anachronistic. I mean, the way people, the way we spoke in the 80s, if you spoke that way now, I think would, you know, far out and... Yeah, no, there was a lot of far out, yeah. No, I, <laughs> Did we say far out still in the 80s? Oh, I said a lot of awesome and excellent and... But, yeah, uh, I was you know younger than you in the eighties. Well, the interesting question is when did dude come into the repertoire? I think it yeah. was a little after that. But our language, of course, too has its peccadilloes. When you write fiction for an anglophone audience, um, fiction especially that spans you know a, a good bit of history that's set in another country, you know you obviously want to tell a good story, but there's also a deliberate pedagogical intent, right? You want your reader to come away knowing something about about the history of the place. And I mean, done right, you can come up with something like you know Hilary Mantel, and I think her stuff. You know, I I, I adore her novel the French Revolution, The Place of Greater Safety, and of course you know uh, the Wolf Hall trilogy. But a, a lot of writers, I think, tend to put the pedagogy ahead of the storytelling and the craft of writing, and they end up being a little too on the nose, a little too, you know, too much clunky explication, deliberate shoehorning in of history, cliche, you know, personages or cultural quirks or gratuitous, you know, very country-specific details that seem to be intended to just sort of prove the erudition of the uh, the author or the bona fides. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen Richard Powers air in that way before. I mean, I, I think that sometimes he does that. He shows off Umberto Eco used to do that too much. Um, and there were times, I confess, that I thought you teetered on it. No, not enough to spoil anything. Certainly, you know, I'm more sensitive to it than I probably most readers are. But did you wrestle with this? Was this like a tension for you? Oh, yes. I mean, for someone who's used to writing history and uh, uh, telling, not showing, uh, this, was a, this was probably the, the main challenge of making the transmigration into the world of, 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 of fiction. Uh, and I did have to go through and uh, take out a lot of things. But of course, the impetus behind wanting to write this book was not simply to tell a good story, which I wanted right. to do and had to do, but there were so many things I wanted to explore and make sure people understood. And in nonfiction, when you want to make sure people understand something, you explain it, right? You don't do a dialogue. So that was a great, uh, a, a great challenge to learn how to 
put my thoughts in other people's w words and, and in dialogue and in, and in narrative and a story that could hold people's interest. And I mean, the the problem, though, the other risk is, and here I think it's hard to avoid. You end up with a little bit of sort of zeligism. Uh, I mean, your guy ends up, you know, meeting so many major historical characters, or a lot of them just, you know, they don't get all speaking roles. Uh, but, you know, you got living people like Yulio Ma, Wu Kaisi, mm -hmm. Wang Dan, uh, and you have like extended close encounters with Fang Li Zhi. Mm -hmm. uh, your little Lee is something of a zealot, right? I mean, he, you know, he he's sort of in the right place at, at the right time for a lot of these things. Um, I mean, we'll talk about the Yo-Yo Ma section, which I thought was just fantastic. I mean, that was drawn, that was painted so realistically, I feel like it had to have been taken from a real life. Well, that was a, a, a really interesting, I mean, I had set out years ago to write a piece for the New York Times Magazine on Yo-Yo, who's a a friend and yeah. uh, I, as I got to do it and got into hanging out and going to concerts and watching him and I went to this master class uh, as part of that, that, that process, uh, I began to realize that actually the thing that Yo-Yo wanted more than anything was to kind of be a normal person, but he's not a normal person. He, <laughs> is, an, he is the world's, you know, one of the world's great musicians. Uh, and I felt that it was very difficult to sort of write an article that would be lionizing him at the same time that he was trying to reduce himself to be sort of just like you and me, but uh, with some sort of special ability. And strangely, that sort of blocked me from ever finishing the piece. But I had all this material on him, and I thought when I wrote this book, well, what the hell? Let's uh, go back and have a gander at some of it. And, and so that, that chapter on the master class that he gave at the San Francisco Conservatory appeared. And, and it was wonderful to be able to go back and make something of that because he is such a wonderfully, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, warm character. I, I suspected there, there had to be some kind of a backstory. I mean, that, that felt like it was observed firsthand. It was very yeah. good. Yeah. So the Yak Springs Station chapters, they, those were an absolute delight. That's where you, you managed to work in a lot of the, the real humor. It's actually, I mean, the whole book is shot through with humor, you know, absurdity and stuff like that. But that one, that felt particularly familiar to me. It felt like you were channeling a lot of the Chinese literature of the later 80s and the 90s. Am, am I wrong to think that's where some of your inspiration, a lot of that sort of amused memoirs of, of their sent down years, it, it, it really felt real that way, yeah? Well, my hero, this young man, uh, does get sent down for 10 years to Qinghai. And, uh, sent uh, up in this case. <laughs> yes, yeah, sent up. And his father also gets, gets uh, sent away. So I, mean, I wanted to uh, incorporate that experience. So I did read a lot of books and talk to a lot of people about that experience. Um, and I think it was such a profound one. Uh, not an entirely negative one, it turns out, for that generation, who I think did learn a, a lot. But of course, you know, what, what I'm really wrestling with, I think, uh, in this story is the divide between East and West, and specifically mm -hmm. America and China. And, and you can't get farther away from America than Qinghai, the Tibetan right. Plateau, with these Golok, Golok, you know, the nomadic Tibetan tribesmen. So I, I wanted to kind of set that as the extreme 
uh, and then he doesn't know what's going to happen to his life. It could have ended out there as it did for many people. But right. then ultimately to get, uh, to get him to America. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's done in a very believable way. It's a story that's familiar to, I think, a lot of people. A lot of people have uh, no people who are now in their 60s who had the exact same experience. Your portrayal of the Golaks, it was full of really fun, great, you know, ethnographic detail, um, you know, dietary stuff, you know, how you make tzampa and everything is made of yak's milk. Uh, but, but were you worried at all that you painted them maybe as noble savages? Well, uh, first of all, l let me say that there is, of course, in China, a very uh, august tradition of, you know, both uh, painting Tibetans as sort of highly romanticized, polyandrous, you know, primitive but simple good people of the mountains. I mean, there's a school of sure. oil painting. There's, you know, and also to re revile them in, as, as insubordinate, uh, unappreciative un, uh, uh, minorities of, of, the, of the great benefits that Beijing has brought them. But I think, yeah, there's always that danger. But remember, you know, when these kids 15, 16 years old, got spun out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, many of them were in places like Yunnan and Sichuan and, and Mongolia in minority areas. And the only kind of human connection they could find with life was with the local people. And uh, so, I mean, yes, I, I, I suppose uh, he did find refuge in a way in this very bleak place amongst these nomadic Tibetans. and. Uh, uh, it may be a bit, uh, a bit uh, idealistic, but uh, <laughs> there it is. But uh, there were some really fun cartoonish uh, you know, drawings of, of the, the little petty tyrant out there and his, his, his little lackeys. It was fun, you know, the great eunuch or whatever. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> I really enjoyed those sections. And then, of course, the pigs, which that was a delightful little trick to, to name them, you know, Nikita and Nina. Uh, was, well, a good, good, good anti-revisionists exactly. would, would, would naturally seek to, to heap uh, abuse upon the Khrushchevs. <laughs> so, as I said, you know, there are a lot of people who make cameos through the book, including many writers. I mean, I'm thinking about Lao Shua, you know, his suicide is, is, mm -hmm. is mentioned. Uh, ba Jin, who, you know, mm -hmm. has a good long life and is actually quoted in the 1980s in, in that section. But, you know, of course, who wrote Jia and a lot of his other mm -hmm. great stuff, the great anarchist Ba Jin. Um, going back a bit, you know, Cao Xuqin. In fact, all four of China's great classical novels get a mention. Uh, but there is one writer, as I mentioned, whose works just thread through the whole novel, uh, and not surprising, that is Lu Xun. Uh, Lu Xun and, and Bach are kind of the warp and weft of the work, I think. It, it almost feels like. Is, is that a fair Well, uh, yes. I mean, I entitled the book Gu Xiang, which is a title of one mm -hmm. of Lu Xun's uh, great, great short stories. I mean, I have really deep admiration for Lu Xun because I think he represents something in Chinese culture that's, uh, uh, again, is more or less the antithesis of sort of Maoist culture. Uh, Maoist culture. Um, and I think, uh, uh, so that I, I, I find him as interesting a writer in the sense that he tries to plumb China's interior as any writer uh, in modern Chinese uh, 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 you know, history. I don't think it's just informed. It didn't just inform your your thinking on China back when you started this novel, 
but it seems to have even you know taken on more relevance in recent years for you. I know you recently wrote an essay for The Wired China, which I had the, the, the privilege of reading out loud for uh, our China Stories podcast. It, it was talking about the relevance of Lu Xun to mm. contemporary China. So um, is, is it fair to say that you know, Lu Xun has now in, is maybe continuing to inform your understanding of modern China in ways that uh, maybe you wouldn't have anticipated 40 years ago? Yes, I mean, I think Lu Xun, who died in 1936, did really have a, an ability to understand what it's like to be sort of trapped in between things, in mm -hmm. between tradition and modernity, East, West, classical Chinese, modern vernacular Chinese, all of these things. Uh, Mao Zedong, too, also had a deep appreciation of contradictions, but he had none of the sense of irony, none of the sense of sort of satire of Lushun, and didn't seem to really care about what I guess Lushun would have called sort of China's spirit or soul, that sort of very spongy, difficult to define part of human beings that isn't, uh, isn't political, it's, 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 it's hovers between being personal and being public. And he really, I think, understood that part of the problem of China was cultural, but it also had penetrated into the whole psychology of the place. The idea of being victims, of wanting to be, uh, have, have an overlord, a powerful, uh, even tyrannical leader if they could uh, uh, restore order and purpose to life. So I think Lu Xun was one of the great great uh, sort of and most profound uh, delvers into the Chinese soul that, that the 20th century had. So or Orville, your verdict on reform and opening, I think it's, it's fair, but it's also fairly harsh. How different would this book have been had you finished it 10 years ago? I mean, we all know about, you know, Orville Schell's uh, hawkish turn, right? We, we, we don't need to talk about that much on, on this program, but we're, we're all aware of the context here. Anyone listening to this show knows. But um, I feel like 10 years ago, I mean, I suspect you might have been a little more gentle about, you know, how you pronounced on, on the decade of the 80s. Yes. I mean, I think I, I, I like many of my colleagues, are, 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 is very much a child of engagement. I mean, I grew up with engagement. Uh, I went to China in 1975 before there was any whiff of it in the air. So that was a really good anchoring, a goalpost at one end of the field. And then watching the 80s, which is an incredibly hopeful period. Of course, 89 uh, and the massacre in Beijing ended that, in, for at least for a moment. But curiously, Jiang Zemin brought it back again. It was quite a, and I went on that trip when President Clinton went and got to see the, 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 the actual kind of warmth between those two. Right. They, they seem to get along and enjoy each other's company. And so uh, that was a promise that I had, uh, uh, you know, covered in many, many books and articles. And so when that began to wear out and when it lost all of its relevance and credibility, I think that was a pretty bitter moment for, for me and my generation because it meant that the operating system of the U.S.-China proposition as we had understood it was no longer functional. So then what? That's, yeah, right. A debate for another time. So you would have yeah. written a, a very different book though, right? 
I think so. I, I, I think so. I mean, what I, I think I finally uh, came out in writing this work of fiction in the end is this, that if you have a revolution, as Mao did, that's as long-lived and as deep and really grips society in, 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 in such a profound way, you don't just bring a Deng Xiaoping along to wave a wand and expect it to vanish. It remains in the bloodstream, and it, it it's very hard to completely uh, exorcise. Yeah, I mean, this, that's the nub of the question right here. I mean, I think any novel that you sit against the backdrop of the second half of the 20th century in China, you're going to bring up, I mean, at, at, at the core, the tension between, you know, continuity and change, right? I mean, that's the one mm -hmm. thing that we're constantly wrestling with. And I mean, it's one that you've, you've wrestled with quite a bit. And where you come down on one aspect of this, namely that, you know, you, you see more continuity than change in the character of authoritarian Leninism, of the CCP, even as you conclude that the party just isn't as susceptible to change as maybe we once thought it might have been, you seem to sympathize with the characters of the novel who believe very much that Chinese society's capacity for change is almost limitless. You know, yeah. the, the Weijing Chengs and the Liu Binyans and the, the Fang Lijers. Um, there is one position I kept hoping that maybe one of your characters would give voice to, and that is the people who, however unfashionable or however even cowardly it might be, were arguing that there were very real limits to the amount of change that Chinese society could absorb. And that's, it's no different in the 80s than it was in the 30s or in the 40s when people like my grandfather were arguing that there's only there's limits to the amount of change that Chinese society can absorb, that uh, Mao's revolution couldn't change people overnight. It would was no more effective of a magic wand than Deng's sort of, you know, waving of a magic wand in 1979. So, uh, I mean, I feel like there's inconsistency, like, can you believe that Chinese society is ready for overnight? I mean, then this is really, I think when people say, you know, China is full of contradictions, the biggest one is the one I mean, that we've all observed, that China is the society that is the most freighted by history, that it's where the gravitational pull of history is the greatest. But also, the Chinese society is somehow one that is able to affect instantaneous reinvention, just on a dime. It's able to lift itself out to you know, attain escape velocity. And both these things seem to be true, and you can point to instances of both, but people are often very inconsistent on how they apply that, whether they're talking about Deng or whether they're talking about Mao. Well, I think, you know, uh, it's undeniable that China is a deeply unresolved culture, political system, uh, country, and that it has within it the capacity to change again, and it will. There's no doubt about it. Right. Um, uh, I, I, and I think what we see now is not the end of the game. It's simply one side of the contradiction that has sort of waxed and waned over the last few decades. And I think my characters, um, you know, think about uh, Li Tongshu, the father, Mm -hmm. and, and, and little Lee, the, the woman he finally marries in China, in spite of the fact he resolves he'll never go back to China. He does, and he marries a Chinese woman, not an American. Why? Well, these people are constantly telling him, don't expect too much change. Right. You, know, don't, don't, you can't change the outside world. You have to live within the terms of the game as you find it. And so I think, 
uh, there is a kind of a cautionary word there. And uh, my own view, Kaiser, uh, you know, is that I was there as I guess you probably were too in 1989 and watched sure the whole, was, yeah. whole, whole thing unfold. And I think it was completely justified. However, it was a tragedy because it put a stake through the heart, the hope, through the hopeful uh, uh, reforms that might slowly have bent the metal and brought China to a more tolerant, open, you know, democratic phase. So that, for me, was exactly what you're saying. It was too much, too much change administered mm. too precipitously. And even though one is for it uh, in principle, in practice, you can recognize that it was tremendously destructive. Right, right. It's always that thing, that principle and practice. I mean, Fang Lijiu, uh, you know, when I knew him at the University of Arizona after 89, when I was there as a graduate student studying with Alan Whiting, uh, he was in the building next door, and I saw him frequently. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the thing. He really understood his role historically as not a realistic one at all, but just sort of yeah. staking out goalposts, you know, sort of that he was kind of a distant idealism, um, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about Hong Kui, the... Um, mm -hmm. the uh, conservatory student who, who she plays the young Qin and you know little Lee falls in love with her before he leaves for America and you're right she does represent in the novel kind of conservatism of traditionalism after all you know she plays this traditional Chinese instrument she's got a lot of characteristics that we would associate with sort of the more traditional uh, Chinese person She's a little more demure. She wants to keep her head down. She constantly implores Little Lee not to fly too cl close to the, the flame of dissident politics, right? And uh, it's interesting because she, she, she's great. I, I really love that character. I thought she was faithfully drawn. I've met her before and also <laughs> fallen in love with her. Um, <laughs> but she, she has an opposite number in The American Woman, Juliet, right? I mean, they were like as diametrically opposed as, as you could possibly be. She's like this, you know, aerobics instructor, ballet dancer, uh, she's statuesque and beautiful. Um, uh, and Lily has a torrid love affair with her, uh, but she lives in this state of constant entropy. You know, she's like a free spirit. She's sexually liberated. She ultimately betrays him while Hong Hui is incredibly faithful. I mean, beyond any expectation of, of fidelity, right? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's interesting. But on the subject of betrayal, what, what, what happens in the book? And, and, you know, I, I understand that I should put a, a a, a, a spoilers alert at the beginning of, of this podcast, but um, he betrays basically everyone. He betrays the nice girl he was seeing in California. I think his name is Lisa, Lisa, right? Yeah. Lisa Middleton, I think, um, with whom he's just moved in. And then by the end, he betrays his wife, you know, uh, Xiao Hui, and he betrays their child. Uh, everyone except, uh, you know, the other virtuous one, um, Little Wong, right? <laughs> who, who he ends up, you know, dying for. His, his buddy. His buddy. Well, you know, I think um, the story of, of China, and, and it may be true of other countries, but we're speaking of China, is that it is a kind of divided uh, place. Divided because it, somebody like my, my hero wants to go to America, is part American, idealizes, fantasizes about America, but still is deeply Chinese and can't get away from <clears throat> that reality. And so has a difficult time being on either side of the divide. 
And I think that that's the sort of the dilemma that I really wanted to probe. And it's, it's a dilemma, I might add, that I think it's gotten much more uh, uh, difficult to bridge now that we're into the world of decoupling. Because it used to be that these people could go back and forth and live on both sides. You've done that. Now right. it's more I mean, difficult. It's the story of my life right now. I mean, it's the story of your life. Exactly. Well, it's the story of my life, too. I married a Chinese woman. I've been to China hundreds of times, and I could be both an American and have a relationship with China. But for, I think for Chinese, it's really difficult when they get sort of forced to make a decision. And my hero can't make a decision because he's both things at once, and they don't factor out into an equally balanced equation. He doesn't make a lot of decisions, right? I mean, I, I kept looking quite for quite passive. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's very passive. Um, there's, there's, yeah, that sort of Hamlet quality to him. Uh, you mentioned you were married to a Chinese woman. Um, there is a lot of meditation on death in this book, and I, 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 just so that the audience understands that I did ask you before. I mean, that you said you were comfortable talking about this. Um, you've recently gone through the terrible tragedy yourself of the passing of your wife of of. 35 years, uh, Bai Fong, which, I mean, knowing this before I even started reading the book, it just added this whole layer of poignancy uh, to it as I read. Um, and just w- as Li Tongshu's cancer progressed and just, you know, toward that inevitable conclusion, it, I just felt like my heart was breaking for you. I, I'm guessing that you must have written Li Tongshu's passing before Bai Fong's passing, and I, I can't help but think that maybe in small some small way might have helped you and maybe prepared you for that. Yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, my brother with whom I was very close, who's also a writer, Jonathan Shell, died mm-hmm. and had a really ha- hard death of cancer uh, four or five years ago. My sister then died, and then my, my wife died of cancer. On, and so I... I felt in a curious way I was writing about each of them, but that mm. I, I wrote about sort of what it is to have somebody who you deeply care about uh, die and leave. And then it happened to me uh, in the most sort of uh, close and, and poignant way, my own wife. So it was an odd experience, I have to say. But again, uh, I mean, this is probably why I love Bach, because really what Bach is trying to tell everybody in his cantatas, and I never listened to the words very much when I, I used to sing them when I was in college, and I, I, and I started to listen to it. And really what he's trying to do is remind us that we're human, that we're mortal, and that for him, Life is really about preparing to have a, a, a good death, to let go and go into the world of heavenly peace. And of course, he was deeply Christian and believed in an afterlife and all of these other things. But I, I did find some succor in that, as I suppose many people have throughout out history. But um, it's a reminder that we're here on the earth for a short time and uh, nothing's for, for nothing's eternal, despite the fact that Chairman Mao is in his mausoleum, and he he his he was all about immortality. In the grand tradition of Qin Shi Huang. Yes, I mean, uh, long live Chairman Mao. What is more uh, expressive of his his you know desire n- never to be forgotten, never to never to be uh, 
you know, removed from the China, central place in China's life. Baifang must have profoundly influenced your writing of this, this novel. Can, can you talk about some of the, the people or the passages that are particularly infused with her spirit or with her stories or with her, her experiences? I mean, it's such a prof- it was such a profound sort of irrigation of my life and, and this book. Everything from tiny little details to just the way Chinese are in a circumstance when there's, they can't do anything about something. Um, and I found... Mei kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. Uh, that sort of fatalism. I, I learned a lot about that and, and how, I mean, Americans do not have a deeply, a deep abiding sense of fatalism. Our attitude always is we get indignant, we get angry, we want to fix it, whether it's our medical problems, our political system, our uh, trash That stolen election. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever it is, we imagine ourselves as sort of superhumans capable of rectifying it. But I think in China there's a very different uh, sort of attitude because people have lived with the inevitability of things that they have no power to, 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 to change and no power to, to, to rectify. And they're wonderful little details. I mean, I remember Baifeng told me about uh, someone in her childhood uh, whose mother named him Pile of Shit Wang. Why? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, Wang Fundui. Yeah. Because that would protect her child, and she'd lost some children before that from evil spirits that might come and take him away. I, I thought that was so wonderful that, and, you know, the poor kid suffered under that his whole life. But it's so Chinese, it's so real, that sort of peasant culture. Uh, and I profited from many, many such little details from, through her telling. There's there's a name there's a fancy word that I remember Don Harper who caught me classical Chinese told me for that type of naming convention where you give somebody you know a name that is supposed to you know sort of ward off evil spirits by you know by denigrating there's a, I wish I could remember that word I'll I'd like up. to know yeah me too <laughs> really really fantastic Orville this is your first novel but I really hope it's not your last because I think you've got a gift and I really Look forward to having you back on the show to talk about that one. Do you have something, another iron in the fire? Do you, is, have you been bitten by the bug? Do you think that you're going to try this again? Well, I really enjoyed doing it, and I've never sort of worked so hard and long on anything, but it was a wonderful experience because it did give me a chance to probe areas that were hard otherwise. Um, listen, if it takes me this long to write the first one, uh, I think the actuarial tables are against writing another one. Uh, I haven't quite <laughs> figured out what I want to do, but... Uh, I do have some ideas. Well, we can, you know, wish you wide sway and then maybe... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's head for a little immortality. Yeah, yeah, a certain elixir. Certain elixirs have been known to help writers along in the craft anyway, right? Yes, yes. uh, Templeton Rye is my muse of late. You know, but let's let's definitely uh, have that other conversation about the other stuff. Uh, You know, as difficult as it is, and you know, we may be on very different sides of it. We um, because I'm one of the few holdouts still who believes that all of your uh, inveighing against 
against engagement is a straw man argument. <laughs> but Well, listen, time. I would welcome engagement back again because it would heal the very divide I'm writing about in my old home, namely yeah, yeah. the inability to be on both sides. And it was that's an enormous loss. And yeah. I do attribute uh, the death of engagement uh, largely to, 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 I think, to, uh, to, to the Chinese Communist Party's sort of wolf warrior posture. Uh, and I, I regret its passing. Yeah, I, I, we made a portion blame slightly differently, but yeah, I, I certainly yeah. share in, in, it, in that regret. Orville, let's move on to recommendations, but first a, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina, and if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca, with the China and Africa podcast with Eric Olander and, and Kobus von Staden, uh, the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, which is just fantastic, in which I, I painstakingly edit every other week, China Stories, of course, Tech Buzz, any of the other podcasts in our network, remember that the best way to show your support is by subscribing to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. Jeremy Goldcorn is so busy making that thing that the the you know it's making it the best china newsletter around i think that he just doesn't have time to join me in hosting this show lately i have a rule he has to read the book before he can join as a co-host yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't have time unfortunately so it's just testimony though to how good the newsletter actually is okay on now to recommendations uh orville what you got for us well, listen, uh, if you want to delve into the past and, and during the b pandemic, backlists are, are, are excelling, uh, do read some Lucian. Read yeah. some of his essays. Read some of his uh, fiction. Uh, I think he has the sort of fundamental contradictions of the sort of Chinese character, if you will, uh, down, and, and they're, they are more or less eternal. Uh, a book I'm in the middle of, which is really quite wonderful, uh, Ai Weiwei, the great artist, mm. has just written a, um, a book, a kind of a memoir biography. But uh, it's not so much about him alone, it's about his relationship to his father, the great 20th century poet, Ai Qing, uh, and about growing... So it's your book. <laughs> it's very oddly uh, a parallel universe in nonfiction, you know, the story of a, of a, of a son and, and an artist father. And uh, Ai Weiwei, of course, grew up with his father in uh, prison camps or, or, you know, rustication at least in Xinjiang. And, uh, and that sort of explains a lot of his sort of cantankerousness, I think. So that's, a, <laughs> I think, a, a wonderful read uh, that um, I, I, I do recommend. And that's not out yet, right? That's not out. That won't be out till November. You know, one final book that I, I've read uh, within the last year that's really wonderful is it's called Blood Letters. Uh, mm. And it is the letters of a young woman uh, earlier in the 20th century and, and uh, 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 during the Cultural Revolution who, uh, from jail, uh, uh, written by this uh, professor of theology, Xilian. Uh, her name is Lin Zhao. But it's a, a beautiful story of some defiant soul caught up in the Chinese Communist Revolution who had a bitter, bitter life, but chronicled it all in letters that ended up being held by a prison that the family got back. And this guy translated and, and published. And it's, a, it's, it's quite an amazing uh, document. Great double entendre in the title there, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she wrote a lot of her letters in blood because she oh, didn't have okay. any ink, yeah. Yeah, yeah and her, her abusers were bloodletters, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
Orville, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, great, great recommendations. Um, you know, the thing about Lu Xun is his his whole canon. It's it's manageable. It's there's just not a ton there. You can read it all. I mean, it's everything yeah. that he's written. You um, can. Uh, I mean, the short stories is just sort of basically one volume, and then to right. read some of his essays, and there are various collections and some uh, some anthologies that you can pick up. Uh, Julia Lovell has a good translation. So mm -hmm. I think he's a wonderful way to get something more. So, I mean, he writes as no Chinese in China now is able to write. Mm -hmm. And even though Mao Zedong uh, heralded him, I don't think Mao Zedong would allow him to, 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 to write today if both right. of them were alive. As long as his ire was directed mainly against the, the uh, government in power at the time or against the warlords or whatever. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So my recommendation is Interior Chinatown, a novel by Charles Yu, who uh, won the National Book Award for it in 2020. Uh, I finally got around to reading it, um, this being AAPI month and all that. Uh, it is really funny. It's highly original. It's surprisingly pretty touching. It's, it's really darkly humorous um, and very, very short. Uh, the guy who recommended it to me was actually uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Uh, he was my guest. Uh, a couple of, of friends and I interviewed him in a clubhouse chat uh, just last week, and he's absolutely brilliant. And he actually he recommended this book, so I, I grabbed it and read it over the weekend. And it's, it's just great. Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Um, very funny, but just as a Chinese American, it just spoke right to me. My God. So Orville, again, congratulations on the book, and you know, despite my very, very minor quibbles, I do highly, highly, highly recommend it, and I hope that it gets widely read. Um, it's just, it, I think it's a real success. Well, thanks, Kaiser. It's always fun to be on your podcast and and, and, and range so widely across the landscape. And yeah, the next time we get together, let's talk about music too. I mean, I, I just this is something yes. I, I don't know, how, you know, how I've not plumb those depths with you before in, in prior conversations. Well, but, uh, you love music and I love music and I think actually it's another very interesting avenue of ingress into China and, that's right. and what divides them and, and, and us or East and West or however you want to see the divide. And if you are interested in music in China, don't forget I interviewed uh, Jennifer Lin, Sheila Melvin, and uh, the great Tsai Jingdong uh, on this program just a few weeks ago about Beethoven in Beijing. And we had a really good deep conversation about classical music in China. Not our first. Orville, once again, it was just a fantastic time. To, uh, great, great to talk to you. Uh, and again, deepest condolences on, on Baihong's passing. Thank you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcord with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.